This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Hey everybody, it's John Hall, the senior editor of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. We're on the convention floor here for the final day of the Craft Brewers Conference in Denver, Colorado. And sitting across from me is J. Nicole Jackson Beckham, Ph.D. She is the first ever diversity ambassador for the Brewers Association. She's also an assistant professor of communication studies at Randolph College. Uh, she has a storied history in the brewing community. She's been an avid home brewer for over a decade. She's researched and written about beer and its place in American culture. She's delivered keynote addresses, presentations, guest lectures uh, on the culture and inclusiveness of craft beer. And now she's here sitting across from me. Welcome. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. Well, I think we're going to get into all of this in just a minute, but first... As the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, G&D has led the way on innovative solutions that match their brewing customers' immediate and future needs. G&D backs every product they touch and provides service second to none. Contact G&D Chillers today for your chiller sizing needs at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. The founders launched SS BrewTech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing, science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS BrewTech has the people and skill sets you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brew gear. I'm nervous. Uh, about having this conversation with you. And and I, I, I think it's because this is a white, straight white male-dominated industry, of which I am one. And right now, diversity and inclusiveness and moving the whole game forward is, I, I really think, on, on the top of a lot of people's minds, and we don't necessarily know, you know how to how to do that. And so I, I, I want to get into that in, in just a little bit, but, um, you know, because I've been thinking a lot about this conversation, but what was your introduction to beer? So as a consumer or as somebody who you, t- you take, it, you it? take it as, yeah. So, um, I guess my introduction was probably like a lot of folks, um, in that I drank a lot of, um, multinational corporation light lager, sure. um, often out of funnels <laughs> and, uh, I mean, if you're going to do it, you might as well use the proper glassware. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Um, so I, I took a job at a, at a sports bar in my undergrad town in my senior year, uh, the summer before my senior year. And it was one of those, like, horrible sports bars, honestly. Like, it was so crowded that, you know, while you're working there, you're like, this can't be legal. And, like, <coughs> you know, often part of our duties at the end of the night would, like, scraping glass out of the urinals you know it was like that kind of place wow um classy fun yep uh but in reward for that night of work we we got a shift beer 
and um, I was like, <laughs> thanks for cleaning out glass. Here's a Bud Light. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, here this is the thing. Uh, it could have been a Bud Light, but being um, an opportunistic gal, I was like, what is currently the most expensive thing we have on tap? Nice. And that's really the only way I chose because I had no idea what any of this stuff was. Um, so this is, you know, late 1990s, and this is Southwest Virginia, and there's not a ton of options on draft but still uh it was things i was tasting and i was like this is vastly different from the funnel beer sure uh and sort of got hooked like really fast do you remember what some of those early beers were i'm trying to think of like what would be around in virginia in early 90s like magic hat or yes a ton of the the nine number number nine nine? yeah yeah that was one of my early introductions as well yeah magic hat Uh, what else was down there (laughs) crap load of saranac sure um what else? Um, and then imports. So, like, the the American Newcastle, like, revival was really strong in Virginia, actually. Yeah. Um, we'd get a hold of some Sam Smiths every once in a while. It's always fun. Uh, so, you know, it was still a time where I would look at a Guinness and be like, do I do it? You know, um, which is kind of funny now. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that was it. And I was just like, you know, very quickly, I was like, well, I don't know about that funnel beer anymore. Um, and I graduated, you know, a year later, and someone gave me a, a subscription to the Michael Jackson Beer of the Month Club cool. as a graduation gift. And um, really at the time, that's kind of when my head cracked open. You know, like I was like, this is a beer I've never seen suggesting there are beers sold in other places that are not sold here. Yeah. You know? uh, and that was a concept that was completely novel to me. Um, so, you know, fast forward several years, I'd moved to San Diego and um, that wasn't a horrible place to no. be for beer in no. the early 2000s. Um, and I really just kind of did the drink out of the fire hose thing that a lot of people do when they're, they're getting into it. I was like, they have festivals, I'm going, right? They have tastings, I'm doing it. You can make it at home, I'm starting. You know, so it just was fast and furious, and um, you know, I had an academic career going at the same time, right? Um, and was kind of, you know progressing through the ranks of graduate school and just getting more and more and more into beer. And I think it all kind of came together in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, where you know, I was at this time um, managing a homebrew store, doing mostly buying for four locations. Um, I joined Pink Boots by that time. Had taken the BJCP exam uh, and was you know it was time to figure out what I was going to do my research on for my my dissertation for my PhD and I was like I'm gonna I'm gonna do this on the brewing industry because it was doing crazy things in 2008 2009 yeah. we're in the midst of the of a financial crisis mm-hmm. right um, you have the the sale of AB like right there yep um, and everybody's you know, at, you know, our meager 1,600 or so craft breweries at the time, everybody's like, the bubble is going to pop any day. Yeah, we can't handle 1,600. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I I remember looking at that and saying, no, this isn't going to burst. And this is also fascinating, right? Like this whole, this just this formation, what, whatever this thing is. Yeah. Um, you know, it was super compelling. And I felt like um, as a person who's always been interested in people and culture and communication, craft beer was not just something I loved, but it quickly became something I realized was a great lens to look through if you wanted to try to understand American culture. And what did you find? One of the things that I think is really interesting, and one of the reasons why I've always been convinced that 
craft beer is not going to play well with traditional economic models is that I think we have really different and interesting ways of placing value on things in this community. So um, shameless plug, my forthcoming book is called The Value of a Pint. And that's really the question there. It's like, how, how, what are all the interesting ways that we have figured out how to attach value to this thing and this industry? Um, and it continues to evolve, right? Yeah. Um, at that time, I wasn't looking at like a lot of social platforms or um, rating or badging systems, right? And that might be the next book. Um, but it's kind of like there's all these like really wonky systems of value flying around the craft beer community. Um, and I think part of understanding what, what craft is and what it will do is um, trying to put your finger on those, on those choices of value. When we look back in American beer history, it's, and I've said this before, but it, it's, it's been a complicated relationship from almost day one. Absolutely. When you look back and then you sort of see where we are today, what sort of progress has been made? You know, like what, like what used to happen that now doesn't, and that's in a, a good positive way. Um, you know, what changed back then that then caused new ripples that brought us to where we are? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And some of that complication is honestly like why I continue to be like interested and fascinated by what's going on. Um, so historically... Um, it's hard not to point at prohibition as um, one of these, what I call, central conditions of possibility. Right? It's not necessarily the cause of direct, you know, direct cause and effects, but yeah. it's the thing that made so many moves possible um, moving forward. So um, when you look at prohibition as a historical moment um, and, you know, what convinced Right, enough people in the U.S. to to do something that we that they very quickly deeply regretted. Yeah, prohibition stands out as this moment, but there was a lot um, behind it less than drinking. I mean, interestingly, right, like the fate of women and children in a country at the time that was literally full of drunks. Yeah, was was huge, um, and you had the great migration of lots of um, you know blacks, former slaves moving north, particularly into large Midwestern urban centers who go to public houses, right, yeah. to find work. Um, and so you have, you know, the kind of saloons and the, the large German beer families also being seen as this, like, center of other types of, quote-unquote, unwanted immigrant behavior, right? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of cultural angst behind prohibition in the first place. Um, and kind of as the industry is... Recovering, you know, not only do you get the kind of economic push towards consolidation after, that's really made possible, right? When you close every brewery, only the big ones reopen. Um, but you also have a beer industry moving forward that was hyper conscious of projecting a certain kind of American identity moving forward, right? Yeah. 1933 through the 1980s, there is this very conscious effort to project a pretty slim picture of what this type of, Mer of American beer looks like. Um, you know, you can't say with certainty, because it's history, honestly, but um, I think this is why the big brands were so careful to make sure their malt liquor brands, once those were actively marketed towards urban markets, were not associated with their flagships or their cores, right? right. Even though we, we all know who's making all the beer. Um, 
So for me, this really, really, really sets the stage, you know. Um, and Kraft's moment in particular, you know, f- when you look at Kraft having its kind of genesis moment in the 60s and 70s, um, that wasn't a time where it would be easy for a woman or any person of color to jump into a risky new financial venture. Sure. Right? Like, there's almost- Especially one that was skewed towards the middle-aged, you know, straight white male. Right, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, there's, um, you know, this is always the my kind of thought process when I'm thinking about what's going on now and how to think about diversity. Um, you know, I think we have this tendency to flatten things out and look at them only in their current moment. Um, and when we do that, then people ask the question, okay, well, why does this industry look like this and whose fault is it, right? And I just kind of want to be like, if you take the last hundred years of history into consideration, I think the question is, would it have even been possible for the industry to not be like this? Sure. So fault finding is fairly useless in a century of history. Right? It, it seems like it, right? And But when we talk about race and when we talk about diversity and we talk about gender and we talk about moving things forward... I, I, not even in beer, but I think just in general, it's easier if there is a villain or somebody to blame. Absolutely. You know, and so, but it, it's fascinating because like it is the wrong question to ask. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for for my money, the best question is not, you know, why, why does it look like this? Um, but more so, what's the best way to change how it looks? Um, and that gets to the question of, of strategy and tactic, right? Okay, it is like this, right? Conditions of possibility have all coalesced such that it produced this particular historical moment. So, what now? We're going to answer that in just a second. Uh, great beers are made from select ingredients. With BSG, you'll bring the world to your brew house with an unparalleled and diverse selection of ingredients from across the globe to just down the road. Their dedicated customer service team and industry experience provides you with the assistance you need every step of the way. Let BSG be your supplier of choice for products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft. For more information, you can visit them at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. And this episode is also brought to you by craftbeer.com, a place for beer lovers to find news, recipes, pairing tips, and more. So what now? Like, does this bring us to where? I think like, that's, your job is. Yeah, like, yeah. I think, right. I think that's. I think that's what my job is. Right. I mean, I have a job description that has lots of words that sound quite nice. Um, so, so you are diversity ambassador for the BA. So you, you're not a BA employee, but you work like with the BA on this particular goal and there's other ambassadors that are out there that focus on draft quality and brewery safety and ingredients and all sorts of other things and at some point the BA said uh, you know this is something that we need to address uh, did was there a general job posting for this did they just find you did you knock on their door and say like how, how did how did the job come about yeah um, weirdly I kind of don't know exactly okay. I only know it from my end um, the diversity committee formed at CBC 2017. Yes. Um, so it, it had been in existence for a year before they brought me on. Um, for me, the timeline was sort of inter- sort of different. I had done um, a plenary session at the 2017 North Carolina uh, Craft Brewers Guild Conference. Yeah. And um, 
had run into Julia Hertz there, and we had a really interesting conversation just about uh, what the BA was doing going forward. Uh, and I'm not sure if that meeting was when we kind of both got in each other's radars, but yeah. um, it certainly was close thereafter. Uh, and then within a couple of months, someone, it was like passed down the line. It, you know, it was one of those emails you get where it has like eight email headers on yes. it already. Um, and so someone was like, hey, you might be interested in this. I just saw that the BA was looking for someone. Um, you know, and I, I took a look at it and I was like, yes, you know, that's absolutely something I'd be interested in doing, um, particularly because they were looking for somebody who was going to do kind of data-driven research-intensive work. And I was like, well, weirdly, I've been doing this for a while yeah. already. Um, and I'd love to see what would happen, um, you know, on a larger scale with some resources. Um, and it was absolutely terrifying, to be 100% honest. But, um, you know, I was excited about it. So I came on right around CBC 2018. And what is your like, what are you tasked with doing? Uh, so my, I would say my at least in terms of time and, and effort, my primary job is to uh, deliver workshop, seminar type information at events, crappering events and state guilds. Okay. So that's where I spend the most of my, my time. Um I'm in a little different place than some of the ambassadors because a lot of the ambassadors already had best practice materials to use when they travel. Yeah. Um, but but they didn't exist in this case. So the second kind of big part of my job is actually to create the best practice materials that uh, will be used going forward. And um, that involves a good deal of kind of data collection and research as well. So I would say that's the third prong to be kind of set the research agenda and data collection um, for the diversity committee. Um, and I guess that would be a, another thing. I sit on the diversity committee for the VA. So the, the, the data part of it I, I find most interesting, right? Because when, and maybe this is just me, but like when you hear diversity, it's this nebulous term. Mm-hmm. And, you know, inclusion is this nebulous term. And, and you have this sort of vague idea of what it is or, you know, how, how it should be in like a, you know, perfect utopia or whatever but it actually comes down to just like everything else hard data and number and then once you have that that set you can you can go from there mm-hmm. so so what do you look for when you're trying to build out you know what you're building out right now so for the purposes of what we're doing at, with the birds association we're using federal definitions of um underrepresented and underserved populations um for conversational purposes, I often encourage people to think of diversity more broadly. Um, and when I think about how should any particular brewer or person in the industry think about this word, um, for me, one important benchmark is what does the general population look like where you are. Right? Um, and though some people want to overshoot that benchmark or don't think it's a benchmark that's realistic for them to pull, I always think that it's, it's useful to start with your general population, um, and then look at how your brewery is over or under indexing uh, with certain people getting in there. Um, the other side of this is more qualitative, right? And um, that I also do a lot of interview, doing some kind of pre-case study work uh, in terms of qualitative markers of um, inclusive environments. So um, that's looking at like how do your employees feel about working where they work. 
How are you interacting with the community that you're a part of? Um, these are all different kind of metrics and markers that we can look at. One of the things that makes this challenging is the deeply regional nature of this industry. Um, most of our breweries obviously don't have national distribution. Right. Um, and so when we're talking about advising a particular brewery, uh, their story is going to be so embedded in where they are located. Um, and I think that's the one of the great challenges of this position. I can't talk to people in Atlanta like I can talk to people in Montana. They have different populations. I guess I'm just, it, it is such a local thing, right? That there isn't, this isn't, this is never going to be a one size fits all situation. No. Yeah, it never will. Um, so I think a lot of what I do is, is almost like, uh, like meta teaching, right? So I'm, I can't really tell you exactly how you're going to implement um, inclusive and equitable practices in your specific business and your specific region with your specific model of operation. Yeah. But what I can tell you are uh, some larger benchmarks or goals you can hit or I can give you a general structure to work within so that you can go off and do your own stuff. Um, and that's tough. Much in the same way that I was approaching this conversation with you and thinking about it, right? I, I imagine that there are pro-brewers who are listening right now who say, okay, like I, I want to do this, but, you know, I, I have brew days and I have, you know, equipment orders and, and ingredients orders and I have to run my tap room and I have to make payroll and, you know, uh, this sounds like a great idea, but, I, you know, I, I don't even know where to start and, you know, this sounds like this is going to fully encompass my life. You know, is is sort of a, a and and I've and I've had conversations with brewers, you know, about this as well. Is there? It, you don't have to do everything all at once, and everything you know, every journey starts with a single step kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Where should brewers, if 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 they're recognizing that they need to make this a part of their business, mm-hmm. um, and they do, and they should, uh, where's a good place to start? So I would say um, maybe a twofold process of one, identifying your areas of opportunity. So where do you have the opportunity to, group, to reach new people at growing markets? Um, and some of this might involve um, using some uh, data on craft beer drinkers. We have that available through the Brewers Association. I don't have every region, but I have um, a pretty good national sample of, of metropolitan areas. Yeah. Um, looking at your uh, local econo- economic development organization, they often have um, nice regional demographic data you can start with. Um, and kind of figuring out what it is, what what it is you're trying to accomplish and why. Um, you know, if I talk to any brewer across the country and I said, "What does success mean to you?" Yeah. Right. I think a lot of them will have an answer ready. Right. Success might be, we want to, you know, close the cap on our debt, or we want to make this um, such a viable brand that somebody wants to buy it. Yeah. Right. Or. Uh, we want to extend into X, Y, and Z market in the next six months. Um, And I think it's useful to have a similar clarity about your desire to become more inclusive and equitable. So uh, one of the things I kind of push is define your diversity. Does that mean we're going to improve our corporate climate so that our turnover drops 10%? Um, or are we going to close um, geographic gaps on our distribution map, right? So that whole of that neighborhood where you have no accounts, right? We're going to get in there. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, 
and you notice that the the metrics that I'm listing right now are not check boxes like yeah. how many people are coming through the door. Yes. Right. There's no like. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of one of the bigger things I say. Like, think about what this means to you and find a way to quantify it or qualify it. Um, that isn't about quotas and it isn't about head counting, but it's about um, thinking about what does it look like when you have done this well. Uh, and that's a great place to start. Once you can start there, then you can look at that as a, an overall strategy and say, okay, what kind of things do we need to do if we're going to reach that goal? So if you're going to close geographic gaps in your accounts by getting into some neighborhoods, then may, that might mean you need to do some training with your sales reps about going into accounts they're not comfortable approaching. Yeah. Or you need to talk to your distributor, right? Like, but then once you kind of clarify that, then specific tactics fall into place. Um, for me, once you have a tactic in place, you got to put a measurement on it, right? You have to be able to assess it. So, again, if you're trying to close a geographic gap by getting types of accounts in neighborhoods you've never been into, what's your KPI, right? Like, right. how many how many accounts or what types of accounts? Uh, and then you can look later and say, are we doing it? We did. Do we need to move our goal? Or we didn't. Maybe we need to change this approach. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, one of the interesting things that was said earlier at CBC was, uh, I think during the opening session, uh, the chair of the board, I believe, um, talked about the priority of professionalizing the industry. Um, and I take that to mean, like, let's all run better businesses. Yeah. Uh, and in an interesting way, I feel this is a similar need in our conversations about inclusion, equity, and diversity. I think we need to professionalize that effort. Um, excitement in cheerleading is, is great, right? but these are legitimate business goals that both improve your, your organizational culture and your bottom line. Sure. Um, and so it needs to be a conversation had... Uh, with the kind of ca- candor and detail and attention as, as any other. But going back to when you're talking about this 60s and 70s and, you know, that it, it would be hard for people of color, be hard for women to get into the industry. I mean, that still exists today. Yeah, absolutely. And that's sort of striking to me because, you know, I go to tap rooms, you know, I visit a lot of breweries and I, I, I think more and more I see diversity in drinkers, you know, and it's, it's, it's older, it's younger. Uh, you know, you can tell, you know, if there's, there, there, there's just a, a large swath of America. And the mm-hmm. thing that I've always liked about beer, and I've said this in my recent book is, you know, beer doesn't know gender, beer doesn't know race, beer doesn't know, you know, anything. Beer is just beer and it's the people who enjoy it, who come together. And that's the starting point mm-hmm. to, 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 to get from there. Um, you know, it's and and I think that especially during like even the last presidential election, like it was nice seeing, uh, you know, the two sides warring against each other, but still coming down to the same brewery and having you know the same beer and the same sort of shared experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but how come it hasn't? Is there even a reason why it hasn't? Like, is there something that is mm-hmm. still holding the industry back on the kind of ownership and yeah and operation side? Uh, I would say a group of things. Um, okay. I mean, one, I think whether or not we're talking about having cash in hand, I do believe that it is far easier to start a brewery and be successful if you have some access to generational wealth. Right? Um, and I don't, again, I don't necessarily mean 
you are Richie Rich, right, and, like, you just bring the money bags and start the yeah. brewery. Um, there are a lot of people who are taking on tremendous amounts of financial risk and debt um, getting breweries off the ground. But it does help when you don't have college loans you're paying back, right, or when you... Um, have a home, a home that you can put a second mortgage on. Right? Yeah. Um, those are um, those are elements of generational wealth. Or if you have a friend who actually has fifty grand to throw into your crowdfunding campaign, right? um, and in certain communities, that kind of, of structural wealth, you know, is missing. And so, you don't have social or financial capital to draw upon if you wanted to take out a startup loan or. Um, so there's, there's a huge kind of financial piece. And I think we can do a lot better leveraging existing resources, um, like small business associations yeah. and uh, programming that's already out there. That I think this is really about the job of kind of like pulling together these resources and making sure we can put them in people's hands. Um, but even um, outside of those kind of larger social trends, um, for me, I think... Interestingly, for again for certain populations, particularly when you talk about um, race and ethnicity, um, the craft beer industry and some of these populations just haven't really had a formal or successful introduction. Right? Um, and so, lots of people, lots of the brewers I talk to, one of their big concerns is how do I recruit and retain right a more diverse workforce. Um, because I think for a lot of people, just hiring someone, like hiring good people is hard enough as it is. Sure. Right. Um, and, you know, a lot of people point to pipeline. And so, yes, I agree that pipeline is an issue. But I also agree that we haven't done very much to grow the pipeline or diversify the pipeline. Right? Um, and so I think that's a huge early step that the industry should take moving forward. How do we, how do we introduce ourselves um, to communities who don't know us, um, not only as like, hey, this is fun and we're having a good time and we're drinking good beer, but also, hey, this is a multi-billion-dollar industry that ha- that sure. involves lots of different professions. Um, you can bring this type of experience, and it translates well here. You can bring that degree, and you can put it use- to use here. Um, and I think those are kind of interesting first steps. Um, I wonder though how much the culture of beer plays in to it as well and and, and I, I can't remember if it was you when I heard you speak or it was somebody else who's talking about diversity of the beer itself mm-hmm. and so that if you walk into a brewery that just has nine different hazy IPAs on you know like that's only going to attract a certain type of beer drinker mm-hmm. you know uh, the Saturday morning can releases which is a culture in and of itself that is unless you're part of it mm-hmm. uh, and unless you love that line life like it can seem just downright weird to a lot of folks, you know, as well. And it's going to maybe even just be an intimidation factor yeah, of, sure. you know, like, oh, I, I don't know enough about, you know, Citra Mosaic or I, you know, like, I, I, I don't want to get up at 4 a.m. to go stand in line for, you know, a Fruity Pebbles beer or, you know, like, what, what, whatever it is. And, and that sort of keeps the door shut as well, right? Mm-hmm. Is that... I think to some degree, right? Um, but... Right here's the hard part. You got part. a twinkle in your eye now. Yeah, right. I, mean, I, did, I, I just think it's interesting because um, I also want to like retain 
the choice to make obscure Fruity Pebbles beers. Sure. Right? And, like, only have, like, 45 of the same person standing in line to get it. Right? Like, that's a, that's a choice. Yeah. Um, now, it's a choice that has consequences. Um, but I don't necessarily want to say just because you are alienating people, you should stop doing this. I mean... I've, I think about like half of the music I listen to, yeah. right? And I, you know, I've had people say like the music you listen to is punishing, you know. And I was like, well, fine, don't listen to it, you know. So there's a weird preservation of this that I think is worthwhile. Um, it just you just have to recognize what you're doing when you do it, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, I use this term cultural work, right? Where I'm kind of like. Whatever you're doing and whatever choices you make, recognize that they perform cultural work. They do things in the cultural sphere. Um, and I think one of the issues we have is that uh, a lot of people hate acknowledging this fact, right? That, like, all choices perform cultural work. Um, that doesn't mean necessarily, like, you, your every choice you make has to be, like, towards some sort of utopian cultural ideal. It means recognition, um, and then you can decide is this a profitable choice for us right. is this a choice that's going to have consequences that lead my organization towards the future that I want for it yeah. right? um, and that's, that's something you reckon with yourself because you can say people are like well what if this what if this I'm like yeah what if that right. are you comfortable with, with what, what things look like in three years if the people who are standing in line get bored and decide or like have babies and they can't sure. get right. And yeah. they can't no, and that's, I think that's a real concern that not a lot of folks are, you know, they're riding the wave right now, but yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm like, go for it, you know? And if you want to make a different choice or you want to work on something else, I'm here. One of the frustrating things that keeps popping up, uh, and, Usually it's just because they're so egregious that they get the attention uh, are the labels or the beer names or the... And we've just... We, we've seen some folks sort of push back now recently. Uh, you know, there's the, the, the brewery where, you know, black beers matter mm-hmm. uh, and putting it out there and the, the you know, the, the I, th- I think deserved social media backlash that happened, uh, you know, based on that where people were trying to take a, a serious movement and do something tongue-in-cheek with it. Um, you know, smacks one of, I think, just being tone deaf uh, to a lot of what's going on. But then also, um, you know, it just, it, 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 it just doesn't make for smart business sense. You know, any sort of publicity that you're going to get off of it uh, and any slight bump is going to be negated by you know the overall you know to, to devastation that, that that's going to that's going to follow is it do you think it's just as simple as folks stopping and taking a breath before they go seeking TTB approval or yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, again right for me this, again, goes straight back to cultural work. Okay. Right? Like, again, asking yourself, what sort of cultural work does this, did this choice perform? Or will it perform? Um, and one of the examples I like to give is, you know, uh, family gatherings. Um, there's this kind of great thing going on right now. My family are all kind of nascent craft beer drinkers in the last couple of years. And so now when we get together with family, they're all staring at me because like, I know I'm going to bring a cooler out of the back. Um, 
Did but, you, you know, have that Christmas a couple years ago when everybody in your family got you all, you know, beer stuff? Yeah, it's uh, Yeah. And I was like... You know, because like now they know that that's what you do. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, but I, I bring this, you know, rather large cooler to the family events now. Yeah. And everybody's like, oh, what's in there? Um, but, you know, this is this is everybody. This is my, my stepmom and my dad, my, you know, my siblings and their kids. And I'm not bringing your can of anything if I have to like make explanations to my parents or my niece what it means or if I have to like be careful not to show the label and um, I always you know I bring that example up because I I think we spend a little too much time talking in the language of being offended right and I was like I'm not offended I'm a big girl but like you just shut down an entire category of social interactions that your product can enter into yeah. because it's too much of a hassle and I have other choices. Right. Right. So, you know, the question is like, oh, this might offend people. And I'm like, okay, worth thinking about. Sure. But maybe the better question is like, what sort of social settings have you completely eliminated your beer from being in? Sure. Right, like where, like what doors have you closed with that decision, um, both socially and financially, um, and that's that's the nature of consumer products, right? Like we don't have to be loyal at all, you know. Um, and that's not even just in beer. I mean, it's right. yeah, you know. And I think coming to terms with that is a is a mature organizational move to make, right? Um, people don't have to buy your product. Um, and if you couldn't take the time to try to anticipate these things, you know, for me, I question where you're going organizationally, right? You absolutely evaluate the impact of your changing an ingredient provider mm-hmm. or um, scaling up from a 10 to a 20 barrel brew house. So, like, why in the world wouldn't you bring the same amount of attention to this other aspect of your product? Which, as you know, is terribly important, right? Storytelling around around breweries sure. and their products is remarkably important. It's what I do for a living, yeah. But then there's the folks who push back, though. And like, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, you're a snowflake, or, you know, everybody is, you know, everybody's too sensitive. In my day, you know, uh, you know we could take a joke kind of thing. And mm-hmm. that's always the, that's always, it seems to be like the default line. Whereas, yeah. you know, we meant it as a joke. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it sort of takes you back to, you know, you know, it, everybody jokes about having, you know, that uncle who shows up at Thanksgiving and everybody's just nervous, like waiting for him to, you know, say the thing that's going to make everybody's skin crawl, uh-huh. you know, a, a, a little bit, you know, and it's, I think part of it is generational, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and as our generation comes up and is a little more aware of, you know, cultural norms and, and you know, looking for inclusivity, um, that, you know, that, that, that there are going to still be people who, you know, oh, I just meant it as a joke, mm-hmm. you know, like that kind of thing. But, I mean, that's just not a, it's not a good enough excuse anymore. No. I mean, it never was, but. Yeah. So this is hysterical because. So my, my general policy about public response to labels and things like this, I, I've explained it in a couple blog posts where I'm just like, I'm not the diversity police. True. Right? Like, my job isn't to police people's decisions. I help people who want help. Um, but, you know, there was a, there's a couple of moments. I, f- I feel like, you know, the these kinds of disc- indiscretions kind of always happen in little bursts, like little groups. Um, and so, you know, in a rather obvious um, subtweet uh, I 
I kind of address this, it was meant to be funny question, um, which took me into like a, a completely dorky academic rabbit hole. And, you know, I had a great time there for a little while. Uh, but I started looking at some white papers published by um, the Humor Research Lab, which is goes by the acronym HURL. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, a, a bunch of academics, um, mostly psychologists who are trying to create a unified theory of humor, right? Okay. What makes something funny? Um, and so the kind of working model theory they have right now is that there have to be, there's three components of what makes something humorous. Uh, one, it has to be some sort of uh, violation of expectation or social norm. Okay. All right? So you have to have a violation. Uh, number two, that violation has to be innocuous, in meaning it cannot do harm. So a harmless violation. Okay. And then the two have to happen at the same time. So those are like these three things. So, um, in my tweet, I essentially was like, lots of us have gotten very good at the violation part, right? Um, so we like, we know how to violate social norms and we know how to violate expectations. Although I would say many of us are using the low hanging fruit of like boobs and race jokes yeah. as violations. And I'm like, wow, you could be more creative about your violation if you wanted to really make something funny. Sure. Um, like, why do the easiest things? Um, but the second part, right, knowing whether or not the violation is going to cause harm is where we have issue. And, you know, my argument is, I think the funniest comics that I follow have a really excellent sense of knowing exactly how far they can go before this starts to become a non-innocuous violation. Sure. Right? And they know exactly where to stop. So I think the part of the funny they're missing, right, is the is the non-innocuous things. And so my, you know, my big statement is like it's not that I can't take a joke, it's just you can't make a good one. I like it. Yeah. Uh what are you on Twitter? What's your handle? Uh, J. Nicole Beckham. Okay. And then the blog is? Uh, craftbeerforall.com. Okay. Uh, I'm going to ask you in just a second your hope for beer. Mm-hmm. I wish okay. we had more time. Like we, I know you yeah. got to run in a minute, but this is, uh, I hope you will come back on because like this is, a, it's such a fun conversation. It's always fun talking with you, but just, you know, I have like notes of things that I haven't even gotten yeah, to Yeah, I'd love to come back. Uh, all right, I'm going to ask you your hope for beer in just a second, but first, uh, I want to thank our sponsors for this episode of the Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine podcast. G&D Chiller is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. You should head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. You can bring the world to your brew house with select ingredients from BSG, and craftbeer.com's mission is to tell the stories behind America's small and independent breweries. Dr. J, what's your hope for beer? So, um, probably my hope for beer and maybe my, like, my underlying motive for being diversity ambassador is that um, beer becomes one of the central stepping stones for people who are looking to make change both in their own lives and in their communities. Um, Because when I do look at some of the ways that successful breweries are able to engage their communities... Um, I think there's tremendous potential there 
to contribute to the, the kind of social sustainability of communities, to the resilience of communities, to do wealth creation for people for whom other avenues of wealth creation have been foreclosed. Yeah. You know? um, that's a big hope, but I, but that's really, for me, that's what I see. Like, yeah, we're all having a great time, and I absolutely love drinking beer, don't get me wrong, you know. But I'm, I really am interested in, in it as a... Uh, as an agent of social change, you know, and being a kind of practical person, I don't just mean all of us getting along. Yeah, because right? um, that's never going to happen. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean... Um, this is not, I want to buy the world a Coke. Like, that's yeah, not... Yeah, right. Yeah, but, like, maybe if the world, you know, has more access to, like, you know, cola franchising or, you know, finding ways to to, to send their kids to college or buy that piece of property or um, you know another thing I love the way that craft beer draws people into municipal state and federal politics and policy making and sometimes it's like kicking and screaming or maybe it's because you want a particular tax law or the the right to self-distribute but you know that's now another active civically engaged citizen that may not have been otherwise Um, and I think that's really important um, you know, I think a lot of breweries would look five years ago and say, I didn't think I was going to be having conversations with my legislators. Um, sure. And now they are. And for me also, that's really exciting. Um, so, uh, yeah, I want, I hope craft beer becomes uh, a conduit of, of community-based change. Well, stay tuned, as they say. Thank you so much for, for sitting down and doing this. And uh, thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, if you have questions for me, guests you'd like to hear, topics you'd like addressed, uh, you can reach out to me at John Hall, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at beerandbrewing.com. Or you can follow the conversation on Twitter at John underscore Hall. You should also go to beerandbrewing.com. There you can subscribe to the magazine. Please, please, please subscribe to the magazine. Uh, you can learn how to be a better brewer, uh, find out what's happening in the craft beer world, uh, and hear from you know some really interesting brewers about how they're making great beer these days. And uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. But until then, Jay, thanks again. Cheers. Thank you, John. Take care. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.